Welcome to episode 16 of the Modern Classrooms podcast. I'm Kate Gaskell, head of teaching and learning here at Modern Classrooms. And in this episode, we are exploring how modern classrooms educators can leverage the unique blended self-paced mastery-based nature of our instructional model to enhance literacy for all learners, particularly those non-native English speakers, our emergent bilingual students. I'm joined tonight by Joanna Schindel, teacher at an ESL intensive language center at Washington High School in Kansas City, Kansas. Joanna is a modern classroom mentor and a very, very good one, I will say, and a member of a cohort of ESL teachers for the Kansas State Department of Education, who creates professional development for teachers across the state. Friend, it is so good to have you on this episode with me. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about your journey as an educator and a bit more about the work you do in your school? Yeah, it's great to be here, Kate. Um, So I moved to the United States when I was 18 to pursue an undergraduate teaching degree, um, secondary English ed. And so that's where I kind of started it all. I stayed to get my master's in teaching English as a second language. And that's really where I got started working in their intensive English program at the collegiate level. But after graduation, I moved here to Kansas City, actually, and have been here for six years. And most recently have started um, in the intensive English program. Yeah. How'd you find modern classrooms, Joanna? So like many wonderful teachers around the world, um, I often spend my time online browsing for resources and ways to just improve my instruction. Specifically, I was looking for ways to help me shift my instruction to a more student-centered model. And that's when I stumbled across the Modern Classrooms Project. And just that idea of a mastery-based, self-paced, and blended model really resonated with my teaching philosophy. And I just thought, wow, like this is really exactly what I was looking for and was just really excited to dive in and get started. I actually got the privilege of being Joanna's mentor uh, when she was going through the virtual mentorship program. And it was, we've talked about it a lot on the podcast about how as mentors, we often, you know, we develop relationships and we learned so much about the teachers we're working with. And that was definitely the case with Joanna. I think I learned more from her than she ever did from me. Um, but it's really, really good to, to have you on. Um, how's your experience been mentoring so far, Joanna? It's been so fun. I love the opportunity to collaborate with other teachers. And like you said, there's just this insane ability to learn from other people that you're working with. And I get to steal. I think you told me teachers are the best thieves and (laughs) modern classroom has helped me to become a much better thief. I thank you for that. Thieves for good causes, right? (laughs) So we are, we're actually opening this episode with a question from a listener. Everyone listening, we love your questions. Ask us a question at modernclassrooms.org slash askmcp or tweet at us using hashtag askmcp. Last week, we were able to answer so many great questions. Please keep them coming. And this question is actually framing tonight's episode. Hi, I'm Maggie, and I teach high school English to newcomer English learners in Chelsea, Massachusetts. In my class, I balance English language arts instruction with English language instruction, I've done the whole Modern Classrooms free course, and I'm really excited about implementing it. And I'm wondering if you have any tips for implementing the Modern Classrooms approach with newcomer students, um, including many students with limited or interrupted formal education. Thank you. I'm really excited that we can discuss specific Modern Classroom educator experiences around literacy on this episode. 
even if you don't teach emergent bilinguals or ELLs, uh, English language learners, this is such an important topic because so many of the strategies that serve students who aren't native English speakers also serve students who don't read at grade level who are native English speakers. And certainly there are unique social emotional needs for students who are new to the country or students with limited or interrupted formal education. And we're really excited to do a future episode on that. But tonight we are diving into literacy specifically and just general classroom strategies. So I'd love to start with the first piece of the blended or excuse me, of the modern classroom instructional model, blended learning. Uh, And I'm really curious, Joanna, how do you create videos that best serve um, your emergent bilingual students? So, Kate, one of the primary tenets of working with emergent bilingual learners is really to create comprehensible input through a really highly contextualized, meaningful, and authentic experience and environment. And so since comprehensible input is the goal, um, I try really hard when I create my videos to imagine the experience of my viewers and think about someone, think of myself as trying to watch a video in a language that I don't understand. Um, And as you start to really think about what that feels like, the fatigue that happens very quickly um, right from the get-go as you are just trying to decipher what's going on, you're trying to look for clues, anything to hang your understanding on, it helps you to begin to process through the things that, that... Um, would really help emergent bilingual students. And so we're looking at, obviously we've talked about this in the free course, but very visual slides, right? Something that provides that context right from the beginning. Um, We work towards creating really concise content and instruction. So this kind of conversation that we're having tonight is really not awesome for beginning newcomers because we go off on so many tangents and have anecdotes and stories, and those are beautiful and wonderful. But for our newcomers especially, you know, it's hard for them to identify the difference between the um, essential content that they need to understand and the fun story that you're trying to use to just engage your students. Um, And so I think that the brevity of our videos is something to that we have to think about. Honestly, when I work on videos for my newcomer students or students with interrupted formal education, I try to keep it to three to four minutes at a maximum because of that fatigue that that I mentioned before. The cognitive load involved in trying to understand um, even beyond a few minutes um, is quite intensive. Um, So those are a couple of things that that I keep in mind. Of course, captions are great if you have the ability to translate them in their native language. If not, even just captions in English can be really helpful. Um, If you're somebody who speaks a second language, sometimes it's helpful when you're watching something to have the captions, even if it's in that second language, because reading it sometimes can help trigger understanding. That can be difficult to get if you're just listening. Absolutely. And I've, I've seen your instructional videos, Joanna, and I can speak to how highly visual they are. And um, we can put a link in the show notes to how educators can add captions to their videos. I also remember about your videos that you would open with your face on quite a few of your instructional videos. Can you tell us why you decided to do that? Yeah. So I think regardless of if you're a emergent bilingual student or a native speaker, Self-efficacy is such a huge piece of learning. It has, it's such an influential factor related to student achievement. And so 
I've tried really hard to create a space where um, students' emotional state as they start into the instructional video is one that helps to lower the effective filter. They feel comfortable. You know, they, from the very beginning, they feel like they can connect with me, that this is going to be something that they can understand. I can't tell you how easy it is for some of the students, especially ones who have never been to school before, to become overly defeated from the very moment that your video begins. If they feel like there's no way that they can access this material or understand it, then um, they've already decided that they're not going to be able to learn from this instructional piece. And so I think that starting a video with your own face um, creates that personable element that helps to connect with your viewers. But I think it also helps to lower the effective filter, which is really essential for language learners. Um, if, if they're too tense or they believe that they're not going to be able to understand this, they've already, we've already lost the battle. Yeah, it's so it's so important, and that's one of my favorite aspects about the ins this instructional model is that it is so teacher driven. And you know, as an educator, you not only can you respond to data you're seeing about you know incoming vocab retention or fluency or you know whatever the case may be, you can also um, respond in very personal ways to social emotional needs that you see. I remember that theme of personalization also being being a parent in your learning management system or your, I think it was a Google site that you built specifically. Um, how do you set up an LMS to assist your students? So one of the things that I really struggled with in previous years is that most LMS platforms require students to read, to be able to navigate the materials and to understand what they need to do. Um, and so especially thinking about my newcomer population, I tried to create a, the same thing that we talked about before with the videos, just a really visual format. So even when creating my task board or your progress tracker, instead of just having something that was full of text, I create, try to create something that has visual icons that represent each of the tasks or assignments um, so that students, regardless of whether they can read or not, um, can navigate to to that tile, they can click on that tile and it takes them to exactly where um, they need to go for their assignment. And so I think keeping in mind just the amount of um, literacy that my students have to be able to make sure that regardless of where they're at, they can access the content in my LMS. So that's kind of one of the, the main driving factors is how do I create a really visual and interactive space that doesn't um, require them or necessitate their ability to read to be able to get to the content. And you build on Google Sites, correct? Yep. This year, um, I created a Google Site that linked directly into my Google Classroom. So my Google Site was kind of like the front of the house with Google Classroom being the behind the house that stores everything that they turn in. Um, but the Google site just allowed a lot more flexibility with creating a, a more visual um, space for my students to interact with. I, yeah, I remember just being so, so impressed when I first saw it and thinking of how easy this was to navigate. And I think that point about how you know, visuals can really help reduce the cognitive load. And we talk about that with our 
best practices surrounding video creation, but visuals themselves, you know, when, even when students are not on an instructional video, um, anyone, anyone who's worked with me, my former colleagues at Eastern high school can speak to this, um, know that I believe so strongly in, uh, leveraging classroom space, you know, kind of the, the Montessori principle of the classroom space as the third teacher. I'm highly visual myself, even as a native English speaker, I do learn very well with visuals. And many of my students who read below grade level responded in the same way. I, my school, we were always using the walls, the desks, the ceilings as instructional space. And I can't wait for schools to safely reopen when appropriate, because I, I believe so strongly in leveraging just the space itself. In your physical classroom, and then we'll shift to, we'll acknowledge the current realities of COVID and distance learning, but how do you use the classroom itself? Uh, as a as an as a third teacher, if you will, for your emergent bilingual learners. So there's a couple of different factors. The the first thing that I really try to think about is the physical layout of how I create my space. I mean, this will probably look different post COVID, but the goal was to create a, a student centered environment. So that meant a lot of flexible seating spaces where students could rotate between stations. Um, the walls themselves, yes, lots of anchor charts word walls that included those visuals, sentence stems that I was going to reference or ask students to use when dialoguing with each other. Um, we would have our, our norms. Um, we have opportunities for students to use and engage with bulletins. So making that space like really bulletin boards, really interactive um, and constantly referencing back to those spaces. I know that sometimes it's easy for us to say, oh, look at me, I have this word wall. And then you never touch it or you never yep. refer to it. And that that doesn't really help students. And so if you're going to use your, your third teacher, if you're going to use that space in that way, just to be intentional about encouraging students to interact with those pieces and modeling how to use those resources to incorporate them into your learning, into their learning. I really love that point about, yeah, you don't just set it up on, you know, you don't just set it up in August and there it is and we never visit it again. You know, these resources are so powerful, like you said, when we model and then we see students start to take ownership of visiting the resources, looking up. Up, walking over. Um, I, I really like that point. Yeah. And it's a little bit more difficult in the, the virtual digital space, but there, there have been ways to be able to create some, some digital versions of these things too. But I think the point is the same, that if you don't actually refer to them, if you don't utilize them within your instruction or your videos, um, there's, they're, they're pointless. <laughs> Yeah. How have you kind of adapted um, that point of of anchor charts, word walls, um, classroom as a third teacher, if you will? Again, uh, how have you adapted that to a digital space? So I use a lot of um, slide decks through Google Slides and create for my word walls or anchor charts. Um, it's really easy to embed them into my Google site. And so students can flip through those pretty easily and, and access them. Also within my instructional videos, I take screenshots of those anchor charts or those word walls. And so as I'm going through my instructional video, I make sure that that's part of the content that I cover in those videos is to refer back to those pieces and then asking them to use them during our synchronous times too, to refer to them and to use them. Nearpod provides a lot of really cool interactive ways that you can have students 
in live synchronous sessions, interact with slides. And so oftentimes I'll use Nearpod, I'll throw up an anchor chart as one of the slides and ask them to annotate that slide or to find something on the word wall. Um, And so there's ways to kind of get around that. You just have to be a little creative. Yeah. I'm so impressed by teacher creativity this year, teacher, teacher resilience, teacher creativity. Um, Teachers will always find a way. Uh, Let's, let's chat about the multimodal activities, manipulatives, um, sortables. Um, Those uh, are very powerful for students in the physical classroom. I'm wondering um, how you used those pre-COVID in your modern classroom to enhance literacy and then what the shift to distance learning has looked like with those, you know, more manipulative activities. So a lot of um, the more manipulative activities tended to happen within like workshop stations. So if other students were working on viewing instructional videos and students that I had working with me is where we would do a lot of those. And with newcomers, especially, um, we would have like different matching activities, cutouts, using a lot of realia, um, having opportunities for students to to label with post-it notes, some of the things we do with books, asking them to be able to annotate their text, even with post-it notes and looking at those pictures and visuals within that. And then moving into the digital space. I mean, I kind of mentioned Nearpod before, but that's been probably my saving grace this year in terms of creating that more engaging and interactive piece. Yeah. Teachers have really loved Nearpod. Right. Like I can, I can have students match definitions to visuals. I can have them draw. I can throw up a picture and I can have them annotate what they see in that picture. I can have them respond in so many different ways, whether it's a poll or a survey I can create and embed my instructional videos just like you can in Edpuzzle. You can throw your instructional video right in there and embed those interactive questions. And so um, that's that's been really the main way that I've found to to be able to successfully kind of take some of those more interactive or hands-on things and allow students to really engage in the learning process, um, even, even remotely. That's really, it's really helpful. I'm curious you talked a little bit about your pacing tracker and making that very, very visual. Um, and you know, I know that you had it embed- you have it embedded in the LMS right now. Um, just the larger topic of self-pacing uh, in a classroom of emergent bilingual learners. How do you facilitate uh, self-pacing in your in your physical classroom? We'll start there. So physical classroom, like pre-COVID. Yeah. So I actually think that the question is applies to both contexts. I think the process has been pretty similar. Um, and it's probably the question for this part of the model that poses the biggest challenge for a newcomer um, or students with limited or interrupted formal education. Because if you have never been to school before um, and you're just now beginning your educational journey in a completely self-paced manner, it can be really overwhelming. You've never done school before. And now the teacher says... <laughs> here's the unit plan. Here's your pacing tracker. Please be done by this date. Um, it's just not, um, it's not feasible for, for them to start out that way. Um, and I think that the key is to understanding that learner autonomy is a skill that needs to be explicitly taught and scaffolded. Um, learner autonomy consists of self-initiation and self-regulation. It includes 
involving the learners and identifying the reasons for learning, planning, monitoring. And just as you can't foster learner autonomy by dictating what and how students learn, you can't foster it by beginning day one, expecting them to be able to be autonomous learners right away. And so I think that the key, the process in helping them to be self-paced is to teach students how to plan for their learning, how to organize, how to manage that, how to set goals, how to reflect and to um, revise those goals and work procedures to make better gains. And that that requires you implementing some routines and modeling that process. They're not going to do that naturally. And so that's where I've found the most success. And that's been true whether we were remote or in person. If I invested the time up front to teach them the language they needed to be able to create those goals, to be able to reflect on their learning, um, to make a plan for themselves, um, then in the long run, by you know the end of your semester or the end of your year, however long your course is, then they begin to be able, you can remove those scaffolds, almost like a gradual release. Um, and they're able to kind of implement some of those things more on their own. That's really interesting. We talk a lot about a unit zero kind of as a way to cream. Farah, our co-founder, always says, you know, teach them to do the model by doing the model in a very brief introductory unit um, where the stakes aren't as high. Perhaps you're reviewing content rather than teaching new content. Um, so that that's obviously going to take longer um, when you're when you're serving students whose native language is not English. Are you teaching semester classes or year long classes this year? This year, they are year long. Year long. Okay. So for the, for the sake of kind of painting, painting a picture for the listener, if, if you were in January or early February welcoming new learners to a semester course, uh, what would, what would those first couple weeks look like? You've got to involve them in creating the learning experience. And so taking time to help them to understand what are the, the objectives. A lot of people do this in their unit zero, going over the, the standards that the unit's going to cover, the expectations, how to navigate and go through the lessons. And so taking time to help students, newcomers especially, to learn the language around these things. Like when I say progress tracker, this is, this is what a progress tracker is. When I say instructional video, this is what that means. Learning objective. Um, and then involving them in the process. And do, we do a lot of like, this is what I know about this. This is what I need to learn and using those, um, to help to shape and change the instruction that we're going to be providing. And so jumping from there, moving into the learning experience, providing students opportunities, oftentimes, at least in the virtual space, it's been through Google forms. And so helping them as like a a bell ringer or a do now to say, okay, here's, here's kind of where we are in the progress tracker. Here's where we are in our unit. These are the things that need to get done. What are the things that you are going to do? So before COVID, I would actually put them into groups and they together would work as a team and they would create for themselves a plan for the entire week on that first day of my class. And they would schedule time with me to have special workshops if they felt like they were going to need that additional instruction. They had to schedule time with me to do conferencing. And then they slotted for themselves, like within this time frame. here's when I'm going to do this lesson. Here's when I'm going to do this activity and involving them in that process. I mean, it's the same way that the, the modern classroom model set up. It means that they know what they're doing every day that they come in because they're the ones that design. Yeah. They designed that. <laughs> they chose what they were going to focus on. They chose when they were going to workshop with me. And so that 
that took a lot of ownership. Um, and actually teaching them the language to have those kinds of conversations was really beneficial for the newcomer students because they need that kind of language to talk with their other teachers as well. Yeah, definitely. Gave them tools to be able to advocate for themselves and to to have the words to talk about school, to describe school and to have conversations about instruction that you don't, you assume the students are going to be able to talk about homework or where to find certain things, but they, as newcomers, I mean, they don't necessarily have that language. That is incredibly empowering. Just those skills around, you know, self-advocacy, those executive functioning, you know, I'm planning a time to meet with my teacher. You know, these are the tasks I need to get done this day. Uh, Those are powerful for all learners. And like you said, especially for those learners where school is new or this school is new. Um, And I, I, I think that that is, it's really an amazing feature that you're able to bring in to your classroom. And it, it does, the, the language learning piece, the language acquisition piece, like there's been a lot of research as I was studying more about learner autonomy that talks about the benefits of when you teach language to students, especially newcomers, teaching them the language that they need to use to um, navigate school is just as essential as the content and academic language that they're going to need to, to pass biology, for instance. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Self-pacing, self-advocacy, you know, reflecting on your own learning those are commonplace in a modern classroom. And I would say along with revision, we want to teach our students that revision is good. Revision is a very, very good thing. We want to build a culture where it's, it feels safe and it, it's just recognized as, as, part of, as part of learning. Um, what does this look like when you work with students who are emergent bilinguals or even, um, you know, I would say maybe even uh, what are the practical strategies that you found to kind of message this, this, the larger why we revise, why that's important, um, along with building a cultural revision in the class? So culture of revision really begins with an attitude towards errors and a collective trust that allows students to take risks and fail. So one of the norms in my classroom that we repeat every day is to remember that we're all learners and without mistakes, we can't learn and grow. And in language acquisition, actually errors are a sign that learning is taking place. And so I like to take time specifically at the beginning of the year to talk to students about this, to say, you know, when, when errors happen, when you make mistakes, it provides a way for us to have a window into your learning process and to reframe the conversation to say this error shows that you are experimenting with this piece of the language. And if errors are not happening, then you aren't growing. You're not experimenting. And that's such an important part of the language learning process. And um, your attitude towards being able to fail and take risks is going to influence your level of success in um, attaining the second, third, fourth language. Um, And so I think that that's probably the biggest strategy that I use from the very beginning is to help make sure that our culture is one that celebrates when we see these errors because they are a sign that learning is happening and then trying to understand how we can go from there um, and to to improve and make um, the gains that we're searching for. Yeah. I've loved your, I remember working with you last summer and you had a rubric. I remember that you would use 
to point to students who you need you'd reference it in conversations about revision uh, to kind of give them a, a visual example of where they were, where they needed to be. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, so I've tried to implement more of a standards-based grading system within um, my classroom. And so it's a pretty basic rubric that goes from one to four. And then within that rubric, I just modify it for each piece of our class. And so always a four means that you are above and beyond the, the standards and a one would mean that you're not yet proficient. Um, and then the, the two, three um, kind of mediates those, those ends. And so taking time to conference with kids and ask them to identify, you know, looking at this activity, at this assignment, where would you put yourself on this rubric? How do you feel about this, about your level of mastery? And we try to focus um, rather than on a point system or a percentage, but thinking about it in terms of their level of mastery and then talking together about that and saying, you know, these are the elements that I see and this is where I would put you and then kind of coming together um, and then creating goals from that to say, all right, so when we revise this piece, these then are the elements that we're going to focus on together um, in order to hit where we, we really want to hit. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd like to shift this to vocabulary, if that's okay. I know that played that played such a big role with my students. You know, my students, I, I taught 10th grade social studies. And, you know, as a social studies teacher, when literacy is involved, it kind of feels like you're, and when you have readers who are behind grade level, there is kind of a tension of content or, you know, more essentially, I would say more uh, fine, you know, what's the main idea, summarize skills. Um, and it kind of does seem to be, I don't want to call it a battle that plays out in certain circles, but kind of like, do we do, should we read to build the schema or should we read for kind of more like find the main idea again, exercises. And either way, vocabulary played a huge role in my classroom. I would use it before instructional videos. Um, I would have vocabulary sheets in their binders, word walls, um, and I could use videos to help them uh, just kind of gain understanding of the vocabulary term that I was using. I'm curious about the role that you find that vocabulary plays and how you use it in the modern classroom framework in your classroom. So vocabulary is definitely a huge consideration, um, and especially when you're looking at instructional videos that students are going to be engaging with, if they cannot understand a word that's taking place in your instructional video, there's no way that they're going to get anything from it. And so pre-teaching vocabulary is definitely a routine that I use as well. So I make my video first, and then I go through the video and identify the essential terms and language that if nothing else, if they get nothing else but these words, then they'll be able to be somewhat successful. Um, and so there's a lot of protocols that you can find out there. Um, but it's pretty important to think about the number of words that you're going to be teaching, whether it's through pre-teaching or within the context of whatever it is that you're doing. Probably no more than seven to 10 new words to pre-teach because otherwise you really overwhelm kids and there's no way that they can retain what those those words mean. Um, so I have a, a pre-teaching protocol that I use specifically with newcomers. Um, and that allows them the opportunity to begin to build that language um, and use those words even before they get into the video. And then as they watch the video, they're going to hear 
that language being used. And sometimes I even go so far as to bold that vocabulary word if it's in the text of a slide or change the color so that students take note of it. Um, but I think one of the things that is important if you're going to be pre-teaching specifically is providing students the context within which they're going to read or hear those words. Because as they then read or hear um, or listen to the video, that's going to trigger um, that connection for them. Um, and then obviously post video, kind of like what you're saying, having opportunities for them to then use that language um, beyond just, oh, you needed to know these words for the video. Now that's all we're going to do with it. Whether that's vocabulary journals, like you mentioned, whether that's having other activities where like sometimes I create dialogues and I ask students to talk about the content that we're covering, but to use, you know, give them the words that you're focusing on and say, can you in your conversations with each other try to use these words? Um, and then they can monitor for each other. They can um, kind of create a tally or take note of the words that they were able to use in their conversation. And so making sure that there are multiple opportunities for students to engage with that language meaningfully um, is really important as well. Absolutely. And I I think that there are a few things more exciting to at least my teacher heart when I would hear vocabulary in the wild, as I would call it, (laughs) unprompted and in a student conversation later on, or if a student's sharing something out and you hear one of those terms being organically used and you just kind of, your heart just jumps a little bit. Yes, it does. Um, Kind of on on the notes about like using, using videos and literacy specifically, I'm curious, did you ever use, um, do you use read alouds or think aloud videos to go through a text? Yeah. So you can do it. Um, if you have the explain everything app or I have a doc camera somewhere, sometimes I just do it through my doc camera, but sometimes my videos are just, a model of me going through a text, annotating, talking through what I'm noticing. Um, I do try, especially when I'm working with newcomers, um, to not do quite as much free handwriting because maybe all of you have really wonderful, beautiful handwriting, but mine (laughs) is not so beautiful on the fly. And sometimes the scribbles for those students are, are just as meaningless. Um, they, can be, they can be pretty meaningless with, with native English speakers as well. My, my, I, my students, I would get frequent, like, what are you doing? What's wrong with you on some of my, on some of my think aloud. So they definitely had, they definitely had commentary too. Yes. So when I do them, um, I actually try to take the time to, um, just use animation within my slides to bring in whatever it is that I wanted to annotate because while that's a much bigger hassle um, and takes a lot more time, the text is so much clearer for them that they can actually read whatever it is that you're, you're trying to model for them. Um, And so mainly with, I think, newcomers and students with low literacy levels, scribbles um, across a text is not going to do them much good. But especially like the the visual annotation piece is so key, right? So within a slide or, I mean, there's lots of apps you could do it through different ways, but as you're annotating, rather than just annotating with words, annotating with those visuals. Exactly. So helpful for, for students. I really loved that aspect of of a of a think aloud video. If I were going, if I was going through a particular text, it didn't have to be just an annotation um, in terms of something I write. I could also bring up a picture. Um, I could show an image, just something to help, kind of help strengthen or build schema. Um, and I really liked videos 
for that for that purpose. If I'm doing a read aloud or a think aloud in class, it's a little more awkward to me for me to pull up a photo. Whereas this this was just kind of seamless with video. Um, and I also really liked, uh, of course, being able to use to use the embedded checks for understanding questions. I always used Edpuzzle. Um, I would have students, you know. I'd kind of monitor understanding those kind of questions and also have them make predictions in, in a, in a think aloud video where I was modeling a text. Um, you know, and Nearpod has the same functions. How do you think that the check for understanding questions might look different in, in your videos because you serve emergent bilingual learners? So I work really hard um, to, again, think about how to make it comprehensible. Um, and so for every question that I ask, there in Edpuzzle, there's the option, I think, in your pod too, you can upload a, a picture that goes along with the question. So I make sure that there's a visual to, again, provide that context. Um, I try to include a sentence stem um, for students so that if I'm asking them to construct a response, that there's that language provided for them. But really providing those um, multiple choice options are really helpful for students because they don't have to create the language. They can identify which which response they think is the best response without having to go through the process of figuring out how they want to say what they're going to say. Um, so that's probably a couple of things within my ed puzzles that I do. I try to be intentional about. And then also just making sure that the questions are more frequent than not. Sometimes it's easy to go like five minutes into your video and all of a sudden now you have your first question, but making sure to chunk that time up so that students, when you pause, it, it creates that natural pause. So they're able to kind of collect and um, take whatever's in short-term memory and it gives them the opportunity to try to kind of shift it to that long-term memory. Um, and so if it, if it takes five minutes before the first inter interaction happens, you're, it's more than likely you, you've lost them. Yep, I agree. I also think that there's a lot of power. I think there's power for fluency, for kids to just almost have those headphones, hear my voice going through a text. I think they would tune in better, honestly, sometimes than they would when I taught traditionally. And I was modeling this in front of the whole class of 25. Yes. Yeah. And if you're doing that for um, newcomer students, especially tracking the text as you're reading is really helpful too, um, because it helps them to begin to develop some of those beginner literacy skills. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I think I would be so remiss if I didn't, if we didn't get a moment to talk about, I think what at least what to me started as the real appeal of starting to teach with the modern classroom instructional model. And that was that I could finally work with students one-on-one. -on -one. I could finally pull a small group in a really meaningful way without stopping instruction for everyone else. And, you know, I'm, it sounds like you do that quite a bit in your class. And I, I loved just personally with my readers, I really liked that ability to be able to finally meet with them, you know, holding them to mastery, but kind of getting, getting them to reread a portion of the text. And, you know, now, okay, I want you to sit with me and we're going to go over this specific portion of the text together. Or, you know, as they're struggling with a particular, with a particular section, you know, really being able to get in there. Okay. What, what, what parts of this word do you recognize? What do we understand in the text so far? How do you leverage that, that one-on-one -on -one and small group time in your room? Yeah. So I try really hard when we're in person, we talked about before kind of that flexible seating that I was working on in my 
my classroom environment. And so as we have opportunities for students to kind of rotate through those spaces, there's lots of opportunities then to, because I'm not at the front of the classroom, then it allows me to kind of move between those spaces. And so pulling students aside to do those conferences, just like you're saying, to reread, to identify places where they are not understanding. I think it's easy sometimes when when you're reading and it's hard and you don't understand, you just skim and skip and you don't take the time to stop and figure figure out where where you're not understanding and take the time to apply strategies to kind of fix to to understand a little bit more deeply. And so for me the conferencing piece um is the place that I leverage that the most. Being able to to look at the progress tracker, identify where students are, which students are in need of revision and then pulling them even into groups. So I know that these kids specifically are all struggling with this issue. Not all the kids, but these kids. And so then being able to pull them aside, um, especially in a newcomer classroom. You have some kids who have never been to school before in their life, have never learned to read or write before, and they're 18 years old and now they're with you. But you have some kids who maybe had a third or fourth grade um, education prior to coming to your classroom. And and those are some really big differences in terms of literacy. And so that's huge, being able to take the time to pull kids um, into some of those group work opportunities based on where they're at and the the needs that they have. You know, I always said that I, you know, I would give, I would give more lip service than anything. I hate to say I was, I was, I was a good teacher before I started teaching with modern classrooms. I really was. Um, but I re when I, when it came to data driven instruction, when I started teaching with modern classrooms and having student, you know, being able to flex group on the fly like that, being able to like, okay, I'm pulling these three kids and we're going to go over this based on their mastery checks, um, from that lesson. Um, it just, it was a complete game changer. Like you, like you say, to kind of be able to, uh, to pull the groups of students I needed to work with on that particular day in response to the data, AKA their work, you know, what I'm seeing Right. <laughs> to finally have that flexibility was, was really big for me. Um, Joanna, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I want to have you on at least five more times on this <laughs> podcast. So please come back. Um, listeners, we love your questions. Again, this, this entire episode really was informed by a listener question. So please, if you have a question for us, go to modernclassrooms.org slash ask MCP or tweet at us using hashtag ask MCP. And we look forward to answering any questions you have in future episodes. Um, as always, you can learn more about our work at www.modernclassrooms.org. You can learn our model for free in the free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org. If you do want to tweet at us and ask us a question, we're at at modernclassproj. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash modernclassproj as well. And of course, if you're looking for more support, if you do teach emergent bilinguals, if you do teach students who are not reading at grade level, please check out our virtual mentorship program where you can get the personalized support from modern classrooms teachers like Joanna, um, who's currently implementing our model. We want to thank you so much for listening. Teachers, thank you for all you do. Even if no one else in your school or your district is telling you, please let us tell you that you do so much for students every week. It is, it is seen and it is appreciated. Thanks everyone. Have a wonderful week. Hey again, Kate here. 
In this week's Love From Our Teachers, I'm excited to introduce you to a teacher both Joanna and I got the privilege of supporting last summer. Garner Andrews teaches emergent bilingual learners, and he is one of the finest educators I have gotten to meet. Garner is so reflective, so consistent. It's really been a joy to work with him through the Modern Classrooms Virtual Mentorship Program and to see what he creates for his students. My name is Garner Andrews. I teach 9th and 10th grade sheltered instruction social studies to emerging multilingual students or English language learners in Alexandria City Public Schools in Virginia. When I applied to be a Modern Classrooms Project Fellow, I was looking for more detailed feedback on my planning and instruction that I just wasn't getting from annual evaluations at my school. And my mentor gave me thorough and detailed feedback on my planning and the materials I was making. In addition, she recruited another Modern Classrooms Project Fellow with more ELL teaching experience to give me feedback as well. And my mentor's commitment to providing this kind of feedback really exceeded my expectations, which were already pretty high. The feedback I got was encouraging, but also really pushed me to consider how to really reach all of my students for mastery learning. And I feel like this has been immediately applicable. I'm already seeing positive results, even in the midst of a pandemic. Remember that you can always learn more about our work at our website, www.modernclassrooms.org, and you can learn our model for free on the free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org. Follow us on social media, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. And remember that if you're looking for more comprehensive support, the virtual mentorship program is the way to go. You can get personalized feedback from an expert modern classroom teacher in your subject area. Have a great week, everyone. Everyone.